All right, we have tonight, we have uh, Dr. Bud Stedman with us here, the Executive Director of Baptist World Missions, and we are so thankful to have uh, them here tonight, him and, and his uh, wife Ruth, and we are so uh, pleased to meet them and, and uh, looking forward to what God has for us. Amen. We've been praying, praying for you, you folks for a while coming, and so we're going to turn the, sober, the service over to uh, Dr. Stedman, and he's going to just preach and, 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 and teach. And, do as the Lord directs. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thanks, well, good evening. It is a joy to be here in the land of the non-ducks, the beavers, I believe, uh, is where we are. And uh, we came in February for the first time to Oregon. My wife and I now have ministered or traveled in all 50 states, and Oregon was the gym saved for the last in February. But we were down in Eugene, and they talked a lot about ducks for some reason down there. Uh, but we're glad here to be with you and excited about this opportunity. The real reason we're here, of course, is because of Rebecca. Uh, Matt and Rebecca came with Baptist World going to Australia, and we are thrilled with them and their precious little ones. And uh, Rebecca said to me, uh, she said, you, you've got to go visit my parents in Corvallis, or Corvallis, which one is it? Corvallis. And so I said, well, I'll be glad to do that. We had been booked for a couple of years to come out to be with the folks in Tigard uh, for their missions conference, never dreaming it was going to be modified as it has been with COVID. Uh, but we've had a great time with them up there. We spent a couple of days over at the coast and now with you tonight. Uh, we will be flying out. Our flight leaves tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, so we're going to be picked up at the, the motel there in Tigard at 4 in the morning. Uh, so you'll pardon us if we do not tarry too long here tonight to get back and, and repack and get ready to go. But we're excited to be here with you and trust that the Lord will bless. I understand that one of my assistants, uh, Brother Pat Delaney, has been here with you before. Uh, he is the administrator for Asia, so he'll be the cook's administrator once they make it to the field. And I'm so glad that you've gotten to know them. Uh, Baptist World Mission is a... Baptist Agency located in Decatur, Alabama. We have uh, just around 300 adult missionaries. We count them individually because we used to count them by couples and we found out that single missionary girls didn't like being called a half. So you understand. Uh, so we now count them as, as single. So we have about 300 adult missionaries serving in 51 of those countries of the world and two of those of course now are the Cook's uh, that you are very, very familiar with. We've had some other folks. I saw Janice Terrell's picture back there. Janice is uh, no longer with Baptist World as of a number of years ago. She married a young man over in China. They have four children now. Uh, so keep praying for them as they serve the Lord in their local assembly there. Uh, my wife Ruth and I uh, served for many years uh, in pastoral ministry. I was a pastor in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, prior to coming with Baptist World Mission 11 and a half years ago. Uh, we're on the road <clears throat> about 200 days a year, preaching primarily missions conferences, also visiting our missionaries overseas periodically, and we visit our home in Alabama once in a while. So we're looking forward to getting back uh, to Alabama. We'll be uh, getting back Monday evening. We're stopping in Denver for a few days, and uh, then we'll be home one day and then heading to South Carolina for Thanksgiving. So we would appreciate you praying for us as we travel. Uh, we have some prayer cards out there. You can pick one up if you would and remember us at the throne of grace. So thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to be here. And uh, thank you, Mrs. Crawford, for uh, 
doing the sign language here. That's really, really good. You know, this reminds me, uh, I was in Brazil. Uh, we were in Brazil, I should say, on a mission trip a few years ago with one of our missionaries, John Spites. And John graduated from Ambassador Baptist College. He uh, knows sign language as well as Portuguese. So I was preaching in English, and John was translating into Portuguese and signing at the same time. So I'm not sure if you can do that tonight in Portuguese as well as sign, but if you can, that would be really great. So can't. You Two can't. Okay, okay. You can't, Good. You can't speak one and do another. Okay, great. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, if you would turn there in your Bibles tonight, I want to talk to you tonight about the first Christians preaching. In the early days of modern navigation, and we're here by the Oregon coast, we were in a little shop today, we stopped and looked at uh, you know, out, out of duty, being tourists, we stopped in some shops. And I was looking at some very old pictures of the Oregon coast. And most of them were about shipwrecks. And I thought it was very interesting in light of what I'm sharing with you tonight. In the early days of modern navigation, uh, before ships uh, became made of metal, of course, they were made of wood. And the captain on board the ship kept a compass at the captain's helm, and he never had any problem with that. But when ships began to be made out of metal, they discovered that the metal in the ship interfered with the compass. And so they weren't really sure what to do because the readings were inaccurate at times, so they finally solved the problem. They put a second compass up above, high on a mast, and whenever the captain felt there was any discrepancy with his direction and, and the compass by the wheel, he would send a sailor up the mast to check the compass which was above. And the compass above was never, ever wrong. Now, folks, as we navigate through this world that we're living in today, sometimes it's easy for our compass to go askew. We are pressured by the world. We're pressured by other people's opinions. Even other, the opinions of even other churches can influence us. But we have a compass above the word of God, which is our guide, and it is never wrong. It can be absolutely trusted. So we need to go back to the compass which is above. Now today, there is a problem in America, certainly, even among some fundamental Baptist churches, in defining what the gospel is. I had a young man who came back from Bible college, and he was talking to me about the gospel this and the gospel that. He talked about gospel-centered living and gospel this. And I stopped him and I said, you're talking a lot about the gospel. What is the gospel? And he looked at me and he said, well, it's all of the Bible. And I said, let me tell you what the gospel is. It's not all of the Bible. Though all of the Bible was written with the gospel at its core, but the gospel is a story about what Jesus Christ did, who he is, and what he came to do. That young man had been to Bible college but was real fuzzy about the gospel. Sometimes, even in our local churches, people say, well, I'm sharing the gospel. I say, tell me about it. Well, they say, well, I invited my neighbor to come to church. Now, don't misunderstand. It's great to invite your neighbors to come to church, but that's not the gospel. 
Or you may say, boy, we have a great preacher over at our church. Well, that's fine to tell them about your pastor, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is a specific message, and we have been commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So let me ask you tonight, do you know what the gospel is, and are you taking it to others? So tonight we want to talk about the first Christians preaching in theology, and, and this is not a theology lesson, but in theology uh, there is a statement about the law of first mention. And that is that every time something is mentioned first in the Bible, it contains the nucleus of all the truth that will be later developed in the Bible. And so that is certainly true of the first preaching of the gospel. And when did the gospel first get preached? Now we know that Jesus preached the gospel, and yet he was preaching prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. He was preaching about a gospel that would come. But the first record of the gospel being preached in the New Testament after the beginning of the church is found here in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to talk about the first Christians preaching, and we're going to see how they preached and what they preached. And that will give us understanding about what our responsibility is here in this city, what your responsibility is, and also in getting the gospel around the whole world. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll launch into Acts chapter 2. Father, I pray tonight that you would take your word and that you would teach us, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us, Lord, individually and corporately to be preachers of the gospel. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you understand that the book of Acts is the first volume of church history. It records the period of time from the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost until near the end of the Apostles Paul's life, about a period of 30 years. And it's a very significant book because if you did not have the book of Acts in your Bible, you would not at all understand the epistles. For example... If you looked at all four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those end with the disciples in the upper room. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried and raised from the dead. He has walked with his disciples and taught him, and there he is either going to be ascending to heaven shortly or he has ascended to heaven. The gospels end with the disciples in the upper room. You turn your page from John's Gospel, and the next page in your Bible, if you did not have the book of Acts, would be Paul, the apostle, to the Romans. And you would say, how did the, how did the word of God get all the way from 120 disciples in the upper room at Jerusalem to the capital of the empire where there is a thriving church? How did it happen? And that's the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is the first volume of church history. Now, there are things in the book of Acts that are not for today. There are things in the book of Acts that are for today. Acts is a book that is primarily apostolic. In other words, it relates to the apostles. And there are things that the apostles did that we do not do today, such as speaking in tongues. That was a temporary New Testament gift. But one of those things I can illustrate, for example, Peter and the other apostles walking down the street, their shadow falling across sick people healed those sick people. 
So Pastor Crawford, let me ask you, have you been walking here in town recently and your shadow falling across a sick person? Has anyone recently been healed? Not a single one, not recently, not ever. Why? Because there were temporary gifts that were apostolic in nature that when the Bible became complete, those gifts passed away. And there are many of them in the book of Acts. But there are some things in the book of Acts that are for today. Did you know the number one evidence in the book of Acts of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues? The number one evidence in the book of Acts of being filled with the Spirit is speaking the word of God with boldness. In other words, bold witnessing or bold preaching of the gospel. And that is certainly for today. So you and I are to go into all the world and with boldness preach the gospel. So if we're going to understand how to do that, we go back to how the first Christians did that. And we understand how Peter preached and what he preached. And it will help us to understand our mission today, the first Christians preaching. So, number one, I want you to see the force of the message beginning in Acts chapter 2, which gives us the priority of preaching. Look at verse 14, Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. What's Peter doing? He's preaching. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. What's he doing? He is preaching. Now to understand the priority of preaching, we need to understand what is happening in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's the 120 disciples. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now what's happening here? It is Pentecost, that great Jewish feast, 50 days after the Passover. Christ has gone back to heaven. The disciples are waiting in the upper room there on the south side of the city of Jerusalem for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit in power. Suddenly there is the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Now in Alabama we call those things tornadoes and we have them all the time. I don't know that you have those out here. But it is a powerful thing to have. And there were cloven tongues of fire, or we might call them in a more modern sense, firebrands sitting on top of the disciples' head. It was an amazing thing. Now remember where these disciples are. They're on the south side of the city of Jerusalem in what we know as the city of David. They're in the upper room there in Zion. It is, it is a high point in Jerusalem overlooking the southern entrance, the steps going up to the temple complex. It was the Pentecost celebration. It was the Feast of Ingatherings, probably a million people, according to Josephus, in the city for this great festival. 
So these people are coming by the thousands. Think of, think of a great march in Washington or something. I mean, people in the city thronging the, the streets. And suddenly the people hear this tornado-like sound and they look up the hill and they see in this open window room about, about 120 people with firebrands on their head. And they rush to the upper room by the thousands. How do we know? Because 3,000 are going to get saved. And they say they're, they're Jews from every part of the world. They no longer speak Hebrew primarily. They speak all different kinds of languages. And in their own languages, they say, what is this? We're hearing words from God in our own language. This is amazing. What is it? That is the context of Peter's first sermon on the gospel. And folks, it's interesting, when God orchestrated the beginning of the church, when God orchestrated the great day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit in power, when God orchestrated all of that, the response to the question of the people about what this means is preaching. And folks, did you know our response to the needs of the world today must first and foremost be preaching? God has made preaching the gospel the priority. This is the first event in the history of the church, the preaching of the gospel. Now today we're having the preaching of the gospel falling on hard times. Most churches in America that have abandoned biblical fundamentalism and have gone into contemporary ministry have abandoned preaching by and large. They have substituted everything else for the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the word of God. But you know, throughout church history, God has ordained and honored preaching. Think about church history. Think about the Reformation. Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, some of those reformers who came out of Catholicism. Now, by the way, they brought a lot of error with them out of Catholicism. They brought a lot of baggage with them. They were not fundamental Baptists, and we would not agree with much of their doctrine, obviously. But from every indication, they were saved men who preached the gospel. Martin Luther was asked one day, I read this in his biography, why do you preach the way you preach? He apparently was a great preacher. He said, I preach like Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins yesterday, like he rose from the dead today, and like he is coming back tomorrow. That's how I preach. He preached the gospel. And folks, God used the preaching of the Reformation to bring Europe out of the bondage of Roman Catholicism. Think about the preaching of the 17th century Puritans. And again, we would not agree with a lot of their doctrine. The Great Awakening of the 18th century, men like George Whitfield, John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. Think about the 19th century, D.L. Moody, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Joseph Parker, Alexander McLaren. Think about God using those men. What was the common denominator in all of their lives? It was the priority of preaching. Well, where did they get it from? The Bible says that the number one activity of Jesus Christ, you go through the Gospels and you, you take the action verbs referring to our Lord and you will find that the number one activity of Jesus Christ was preaching. 
You will find that he taught the disciples to preach. All through his teaching, he says to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preaching is our priority. You know, I was so glad, Pastor, when I walked into this building and I walked into this room, and in the very center of this room is a lectern for preaching. Why? Because preaching must be central to the work of God and the central part of the Baptist church that you are seeing God raise up in a great way in this city. Preaching must be our priority. So it's very interesting to me that the word that is used for preaching is the word about how we do preaching, K. Russo, it means to proclaim as a herald. You see, in, in the Bible times, when a king would send out a messenger with a message, the messenger, the herald, the one who was doing that Greek word keruso would go into the marketplace and he would unroll a scroll and he would say, Thus saith the king. He would lift up his voice and he would say, Thus saith the king. That's what it meant to preach. So when Christ sent his disciples, he sent them with authority. He sent them in the marketplace to preach. Now the word keruso, which is translated throughout the New Testament preach, and what is Peter is doing on here, is used in two different types of preaching. Now, I would ask you a question tonight, and it's a trick question, so, so don't worry if you get it right or wrong. It'll be fine either way. How many of you have been called to preach? Let me see your hand. Okay. Okay, we have a few. Uh, how many say, I have been commanded to preach? Okay. And, and, and it's a trick question. Now, the word keruso is used of two different types of preaching in the New Testament. It is used of what I call pulpit preaching or the preaching of the pastor. Now, can I say that God only calls men to preach as pastors? That's taught clearly in the New Testament. Uh, the ladies are not to be pastors, okay? But God calls men to preach as pastors in the New Testament. The word keruso is used of that. But did you know it is also used of one-on-one -on -one evangelism? And every one of us are commanded to preach the gospel. So if you raised your hand, man or woman, yes, we are all commanded to preach the gospel. You say, well, Brother Stedman, tonight you're preaching and you're using big gestures and you're using a loud voice. Is that what preaching is always? No, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, preaching is sometimes done very quietly between one person and another person in one-on-one -on -one evangelism. You see, if I were to go down to McDonald's in our town and I was going to evangelize uh, one of the people, lost people that I had met there, I would preach the gospel to them. I would not be wearing a suit and tie. I would not stand up by the side of the table and say, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I wouldn't use broad gestures, no. I would use a quiet voice. And I would open the scriptures to them. You say, well, Brother Stebbin, how can that be preaching? And that is what the New Testament teaches preaching is. When what you're doing tonight is preaching. I thought preaching was, was being loud. No. Preaching, the core of preaching, is delivering an authoritative message. And whether you're doing it as a pastor in the pulpit or whether you're doing it at, at McDonald's quietly, it is thus saith the Lord. 
you give the gospel boldly. You give it with authority. And preaching also calls to action or it calls to decision. So whether I'm preaching the gospel here or I'm doing it at McDonald's, I'm to have the power of God's Spirit upon my life. I am to be bold. I am to give the message with authority and love and, yes, even tears. And I am to call that person to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that is how we are to preach. That is the word keruso that is used throughout the New Testament. So let me ask you a question. Are you preaching the gospel? We are to go with the authority of Christ and take it to every creature. Then number two, I want you to see here in Acts chapter 2, there is a second word used in the New Testament translated preach. And it is not the word keruso, that is the most common word. It is the word kerugma. And the word kerugma is a Greek word which doesn't refer to how you preach. That's keruso. You do it with authority. You do it with boldness. But kerugma talks about what you preach or the content of your message. So what we find here in Acts chapter 2 is not only did the first Christians have boldness in going with the gospel, but they had the message right. They had the right content. They had the right Kerugma. Now, can I say, Pastor, that I enjoy going into churches and reading the tracts that are in the gospel rack? But I find that many of them do not contain the whole gospel. They leave something out. And it's so easy for us to think that if we're speaking a word for Jesus, that we're giving them the gospel. But folks, the gospel is a cohesive message. It has content. And you and I need to understand what the gospel is. You see, I can be bold in the message, but what if my message is wrong? Then it will do no good to anyone. It may even send someone to hell if I give them a false gospel. And the word of God is clear. If anybody comes and preaches any other gospel than the one that we've received in the scriptures, let him be accursed. We must have the right content to the gospel. So if I were to go around the room tonight and ask you to tell me what the four points of the gospel are, could you do it? Would you get them right? Now they're found here in Acts chapter 2. As a matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost... Peter stood up and preached, and he preached the four points of the gospel that must be included. Now, we have perhaps you use Romans Road, and maybe that's got seven points. And you break down some of the four points a little bit more specifically. That's fine, but you've got to have the four points of the gospel if you're going to really preach the gospel. So what is this message that Peter preached. So remember what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It is Pentecost. It is the sound of rushing mighty wind. It is cloven tongues of fire. It's Jews by the thousands coming saying, what does this mean? And Peter stands up and he is going to preach the gospel to them. And where does he begin? Look with me if you would please again at verse 14. 
But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Some of the people said, Well, are, are these men drunk? Peter says, No. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. Now, when Peter said that, it shall come to pass in the last days, he immediately got the attention of the Jewish people. Now, why? Because in the Old Testament economy, the phrase, the last days, consistently, prophetically, referred to the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So when now, and of course, these Jews are living in an Old Testament economy and they're thinking, they're looking for their Messiah. They are zealots. They want Messiah to come and overthrow Rome so that they can rule the world with their Jewish Messiah. They're wanting their Messiah to come. So Peter stands up and he says, this sound of rushing mighty wind these cloven tongues of fire, you're hearing what we're teaching you in your own language, the miracle of tongues. This is about the last days. And they would have understood Peter to mean Messiah has come. And they would have been excited. Messiah is here. Where is our Messiah? And Peter is going to tell them that 50 days earlier, they killed their Messiah. And they're not going to believe that. So what Peter is going to do in this message, these four points, he is going to lay out a convincing argument that the Holy Spirit will take and drive home to their hearts about Jesus being the Messiah and Savior and Lord. Okay? Now, that is exactly what is happening in this town with your witness. Folks, giving the gospel and seeing the people saved is not like falling off a log. It's not a simple thing. It is a work of God. People do not know who Jesus is. They do not believe the gospel. You have a university here that is totally opposed to the gospel which I am preaching tonight. The teaching of evolution, the teaching of humanism, which is really the religion of America. Folks, you are going into a community that will not believe what you are going to tell them. So what do you need to do? You need to, with boldness, go and tell them anyway, but make the message clear and let the Holy Spirit do his work. So that's what Peter's going to do. He's going to lay out for them the message of the gospel. So what is that? Number one, he preaches the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. Now let me point out that that phrase, approved of, uh, of God among you, can be translated that God proved to you who he was. In other words, it's talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. He said that he was approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Now, let me point out, that, oh, don't go away from the camera. Forgot about that. Yeah, I got I to gotta learn that. I, I like to wander, but this is cramping my style to have, to have video. Okay. 
the text says that by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did, Jesus was approved by God among them. Now let's break that down. Peter is not talking about three different types of miracles. He is talking about the miracle which Jesus did, the response of the people, and the purpose for which God intended it. Okay, Let me read from John Polhill the commentary on this. Throughout Acts, the word wonders occurs in conjunction with signs, a testimony to the fact that mere marbles have no value in themselves except as they point beyond themselves to the divine power. Now, what does that mean? Jesus did miracles. He raised the dead. He calmed the sea. He cast out the demon. He touched the blind man's eyes. He did miracles. The people wondered at the miracles. They said, it's amazing. We've never seen it like this in Israel. It's wonderful. That's We use that word today, don't we? But the purpose of the miracles at which they wondered was those miracles were signs. Signs of what? That Jesus is your Messiah. And they knew it. So Peter starts by saying, Jesus is God. Now, folks, that's where we've got to begin with the gospel. The Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, If ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. Now, who is the I am? It's Jehovah, isn't it? And Jesus said, If ye believe not that I am Jehovah, ye shall die in your sins. John said it in his shorter epistles this way, If any man does not believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, he is not of God. So the first point of the gospel is that Jesus is God. Why does that matter? Because the rest of the things we're talking about are totally unimportant if he's not God. I mean, we're going to talk about him dying. We're going to talk about him being buried. Folks, lots of people died in Israel 2,000 years ago, but they were not God. But Jesus is God. It's the beginning of the gospel. It's where we begin. You know, a lot of uh, modern forms of preaching the gospel begin with something that's wishy-washy. Peter doesn't begin there. He begins with the deity of Christ. Number two, he preaches the death of Christ. Look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The death of Christ. Now, Follow the logic of what Peter's doing here. The people have gathered. Peter is standing up to preach that Jesus is God. They're not going to believe that. They would at this point have had a question. If Jesus, if that man that we put on the cross was God, why did he let us kill him? I mean, isn't that a fair question? Wouldn't you be thinking that if you had just put what you thought was a criminal on the cross 50 days before, and now you're seeing these wonders and the miracles and the signs uh, of Pentecost, and they're preaching that he was God? So they're going to be thinking, if he was God, why did he let us kill him? And so Peter answers that question in verse 23. He says he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? It means that in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit determined that there was no other way for man to be saved except through the shedding of the blood of the innocent Lamb of God for our sins. The preaching of his death. 
You know, the Bible says that he was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? He wasn't slain at the foundation of the world. So when the Bible says he was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, what does that mean? In the plan of God, in eternity past, they determined that he had to die for us to be saved. You say, well, then the Jews and the Romans were innocent if God planned it for him to die. Notice that Peter doesn't let these murderers off the hook. He says at the end of verse 23, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There is the balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I do not understand it, but the Bible teaches it throughout. Folks, Jesus came to die. He was born to die. A friend of mine named Ron Hamilton wrote a cantata years ago called Born to Die. And folks, Jesus was born to die for you and for me on the cross. He died to pay for our sins. So here we have the deity of Christ, that he's God, but that he came to die for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, this is the gospel, how that Christ, God, died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again bodily the third day. So folks, in preaching the gospel, we preach the deity of Christ, but also the death of Christ for our sins, according to the scriptures. Talking about sin, talking about lostness, talking about the doctrine of substitution, the blood atonement, all of those are included in this statement on the death of Christ for our sins as the Lamb of God. But our time's quickly going. The third thing we see him preaching is the resurrection of Christ, the deity of Christ, the death of Christ, and then the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 24. He actually is going to give us nine verses. We're only going to read two of them for the sake of time. Look at verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. In other words, death could not hold him. Jesus is God. He broke the bonds of sin and death and hell, and he rose from the dead. Look down at verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, the resurrection of Christ. Folks, the resurrection of Christ is the capstone of the gospel. Because Jesus is alive, it makes all the difference today. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. I'll simply point out for the sake of time that in these nine verses... Peter quotes David, the prophet David. You said, well, I didn't know David was a prophet. I thought he was a king. He prophesied a lot in the Old Testament. And David prophesied about the Messiah being raised from the dead, that God would not leave his soul in hell, David said. And so he quotes the prophet David that Messiah would be raised from the dead. And that's what this is about, Peter says. So Peter preaches the deity of Christ, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But then he preaches a fourth thing that sometimes is left out of the gospel. What is that? Look at verse 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. In other words, he's saying that this day of Pentecost is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then look at verse 36. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
Now that phrase, made Lord in Christ, if you read a lot of commentaries, you'll get confused because they don't quite have it figured out. The word made does not mean created. It means placed in the position of. Christ was placed in the position by the Father of being Lord in Christ. What does that mean? It is a Jewish phrase which these hearers would have understood referring to Jesus being the supreme judge of the universe. Paul said the very same thing this way, and you know this verse very well. Wherefore also God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus, who is God, died for our sins on the cross, was raised from the dead, and he's alive, and God the Father has exalted his name, Jesus, above every name, and he's the supreme judge of the universe. Now, why is that really important? Because every one of us will someday look into the eyes of Jesus Christ, and he will be our judge. Not just everybody in this room, but everybody in this town. Everybody on this planet who has ever lived will someday be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Now, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote at the time of Christ, The average Jewish male at the time of Christ was five feet tall. Anybody here five feet tall? Okay, go ahead and stand up. I want to see a five foot tall person, okay? That's probably how tall Jesus was. He was an average Jewish man. He had probably dark hair and a dark beard. He may have had red hair and a red beard because David was ruddy or red, and, and that's possible, but probably a black hair and a black beard. When Jesus was raised from the dead and received his glorified status with the Father, you remember after the resurrection, the garden, Mary was there. There was something different about Jesus in his resurrected glorified body that Mary did not recognize him. Now, we don't have a lot told to us about what Jesus looked like, But if you go to the book of Revelation, we don't have time to do it tonight, John sees Jesus on a throne, and his hair is as white as wool. And the marked characteristic that John points out is that his eyes are as a flame of fire. You see, Jesus Christ today has been exalted as the supreme judge of the universe. He is seated right now, this very moment, in a glorified human body. We sometimes forget that. He ascended up to heaven in his glorified human body and he sits on the throne of the ages of heaven at the right hand of the Father in a glorified human Jewish body with real eyes and real nail prints in his hands and real marks on his brow. John talks about it in the Revelation. And every one of us someday will look into Jewish eyes that are the eyes of a Jewish man who is God. And if we've received him as Savior and Lord, we will be welcomed into heaven. If we have not received him, we will appear before him at a place called a great white throne. Revelation. 
and the dead, small and great, will stand before God, and they'll be judged. Their works will condemn them, and Jesus will be sitting on a great white throne, and, and lost people will look into his eyes, and he will tell them, Depart from me, I never knew you, and he will cast them into the lake of fire. And there will be no hope for them for all eternity. I had a young man say to me some time back, and we've got to close with this. He said, Preacher, we need to make the gospel relevant. And I said to him, we do not need to make the gospel relevant. There is nothing that we as puny human beings can do to add any relevancy to the fact that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for our sins and was raised from the dead, and he has been exalted as the supreme judge of the universe, and every man will someday be judged by him. All those who do what Peter says later in this passage, repent and believe. All of those who have a change of, of heart and they stop trusting themselves and they start trusting Christ alone. All of those who repent and believe will be saved. And all those who do not repent and believe will be damned forever in hell. Folks, there is nothing more relevant than that. So do we understand tonight that this flock of believers in this building have a gospel message? That if you go in the power of the Holy Spirit with boldness, you have a message which can change a community for time, but souls for eternity? That's how the early Christians preached. And that's how we're to be preaching today. How are you doing in taking the gospel? Let's bow our heads together. Father, we pray tonight that you would take this very simple message and this wonderful text and, Lord, use it in our hearts to stir us to preach the gospel. Lord, we have the answer. It's not found at Oregon State University. It's found in the Bible. And, Father, I pray for this flock that, Lord, you would motivate them to have a wonderful impact in this community and around the world through the preaching of the gospel. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now with our heads bowed and eyes closed just for a second before pastor comes, maybe there's someone here tonight who's never repented and believed the gospel. I would challenge you tonight, you've heard the gospel. Jesus is God. He died for you. He was buried and he rose again the third day and he's been exalted as the supreme judge of the universe. He will be your judge. No one else will. If you've never received him, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus tonight. Pastor, will you come? Amen. We have a wonderful, powerful message. And uh, we're thankful that we have that to, to share, to preach uh, with the community, with all those around us, those we work with, family. And uh, there's one message that saves, amen, as a redeemer. Our salvation is really a person, the God-man, amen. And uh, placing that faith and trust in, appreciates that message. That's a, that's a, that's a great blessing. Uh, so uh, I just want to pray right now, and then we're going to take up a love offering for, uh, for uh, Brother Stedman. And, and uh, Father, thank you for the message. Uh, dear God, there may be even some online or streaming, Father, that uh, 
haven't, haven't realized these truths, God. Uh, we're all sinners, and, and your word tells us that uh, for our sins we have sinned against the holy God, and, and therefore we are condemned to an eternal hell. And, uh, but uh, uh, this dear preacher has, has uh, shown us once again uh, God's answer. God's provision is, was coming and uh, becoming a man and dying himself for us upon a cross, rising again. So whosoever will repent and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, uh, trusting him alone for salvation and forgiveness will be forgiven. Um, Father, I pray that people might just do that. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to be faithful in being witnesses in this community and to those that are around us. And we do pray for, uh, for Dr. Stedman and his dear wife now as they'll be, they'll be leaving us, that you'd uh, grant them safety and continue to use them in their travels and their, in their ministry, Father, and uh, bless the, the board there. And, and Father, we're just uh, thankful uh, that we could have them here with us tonight. And, uh, Lord, we do pray, uh, we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.